Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture Ops Podcast. I'd like to think we built a culture at Charlie that champions feedback at all levels. Yet I know that in reality, we've still got a long way to go. But the single most impactful idea that's influenced our dedication to feedback is that of radical candor. A framework for kind, specific, and clear feedback. The framework is based on the idea that the most impactful feedback exists when we challenge each other directly while simultaneously caring personally about the people we work with. I too often hear examples of direct challenges happening in the workplace when it's clear that the care just isn't there. So today, I want to try and unpack how do we build a culture where people do actually care personally about each other? And with me to do that, I'm very excited and perhaps a little nervous uh, as I'm a, I'm a mega fan, uh, to be joined by the architect of that very framework, Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor. Hi, Kim, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me back and deeply grateful for the Radical Candor enthusiasm. Thank you. How was my intro and explanation? Did I do it justice? I was quite nervous about repeating back my understanding to you. I was just thinking it's so relaxing when other people explain my ideas. I really liked it. So thank you very much. You did a great job. I did not have any instinct to interrupt you and say, no, no, no. Okay, perfect. That's good. I feel I feel like I've, I've done on my list of things I needed to nail. That was the top. <laughs> um, and look, before we dive into uh, the discussion and, and the the sort of the one half of Radical Candor uh, that we're going to look at from a kind of culture building perspective. I, a question I like to ask people who have, I guess, pioneered new ways of looking at things is what is a part of Radical Candor as a methodology, as a framework that you've struggled personally the most with? I definitely struggle with ruinous empathy, where I was, I was brought up in the South as a woman or as a girl, I guess, when I was a child. And, and I was really taught from a very young age, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, uh, that it's mean to say no, that, that you have to be accommodating and, uh, and that disagreement even is dangerous. So that all of that sort of early training was was hard for me to overcome when I became a manager. So I would say I probably wrote Radical Candor out of struggles with ruinous empathy. And, and just for people listening, I guess ruinous empathy is the is uh, one side of the quadrant where we're sort of too nice with the things that we say to the people around us. I don't know if I would put it too nice. So I would say that so radical candor, as you described very well, is when you care and challenge at the same time. When you care and you care so much that you can't bear to hurt someone's feelings in the short term, and so you don't tell them something that they'd be better off hearing in the long run, that I call ruinous empathy. And it's not actually so nice in the long run, after all, ruinous empathy. 
I tell a story in the book about this guy who I really liked and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. So I didn't tell him what he was doing wrong. And he wound up getting fired. Not so nice after all. So I think sometimes thinking about what radical candor is and isn't can help. And what radical candor is not is ruinous empathy. And that's where you do care personally, but you fail to challenge directly. Now, of course, sometimes you challenge directly and you forget to show that you care personally, even if you do, in fact, care. And that I call obnoxious aggression. And that's also not radical candor. And then sometimes we neither care nor challenge. And I call that manipulative insincerity. And sometimes that's sort of political behavior, but sometimes it's self-protective behavior. Sometimes people retreat to manipulative insincerity when they're confronted with obnoxious aggression. Mm. This story that you mentioned there about um, the person on your team, I think, and, you, and the, the feedback isn't given and, 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 yeah, later they lose their job. I, I'm going to admit that I've used that story, I think, potentially more than a hundred times. I don't, I don't count it as my own. I, you know, I tell it as, I tell it as your story, but it's a really powerful story because it, it reminds you that feedback actually is, it is a duty and it's an important duty to the individual. And if you, if you don't play that role, then yeah, you might really, really care about them, but actually you're doing them more harm in the long run. And it's such a powerful way to explain the importance of establishing a feedback culture in any business. Yeah, and naming that, naming that kind of behavior was really important to me. I, I, I kind of like the phrase ruinous empathy, but I played with a lot of different phrases. For a while, I called it cruel empathy. And, I, and that confused people because obviously your intention is not to be cruel, when you're being empathetic. But if you fail to help someone, if your empathy paralyzes you and prevents you from helping the person, then then it can be cruel, actually. So that's one of the one of the dangers of ruinous empathy is that in the long run, it's not kind. And, and I think also moving, it's it's useful to remember that when you're moving from ruinous empathy to radical candor, that it, you want to hold on to your desire to be kind and your desire to be nice. The idea is not to intentionally make people cry or anything like that. The goal is to hang on to that that kindness, but, but see long-term kindness. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to take um, one half I guess, of the, the culture that we're trying to create with, with, within a business. When we think about feedback, we think about we're trying to adopt that radical candor mindset. And, and there are two halves. So one half is the ability to, to give that good, direct, clear feedback. The other half is to the make... challenge directly. Exactly. Right? And the other half is to make sure that um, individuals in the organization, individuals in their, their team actually care personally about the people that they're, they're working with. Why is that half so important to making Radical Candor work? Well, I think if the, if the goal of Radical Candor is kind of a growth mindset and, and the goal is to help the organization grow, but also the individuals grow, if you don't care about that person enough to get to know them well enough to, to help them grow, then all of a sudden, a lot of what is good about radical candor falls apart. So the, the caring, the, the other thing about caring personally 
is that I think for, for much of human history, we achieved our great collaborative tasks through terrible brutality, slavery, uh, um, and, and then along came the Industrial Revolution, and we kind of replaced some of that brutality with bureaucracy, which was frankly a giant step in the right direction, but hardly inspiring, not what, not what we're going for. And I think we've reached a, a stage of human development and in, in part thanks to our communication tools and whatnot, where, we, where, where the organizing principle of collaboration can actually be a human relationship. And that is much better. And it allows us to do work that is that is more creative, that, it, that is more innovative, uh, that is more interesting and more fun, frankly. And, and you can't possibly organize around relationships if people don't care about each other at a human level at work. And I think if, when, we, when we ponder relationships, when we think about philosophy and how people get along. You know, we tend to think about family relationships. We tend to think about friendship. We tend to think about romance. And very rarely do we think about the relationship between a boss and an employee or between two peers at work as a human relationship. I think in part because this is kind of a new thing in human development where where we're creating these companies that are not operating on principles of command and control and bureaucracy, where relationships really matter and drive things forward. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, because I I think that that is the hardest part of um, getting radical candor right or or any good feedback framework right in an organization is establishing that part of it. I think command and control um, has set us up quite well for challenging directly. But I think where organizations, some organizations struggle, um, and definitely a lot of the organizations that I that I talk to, getting calibrating that care correctly is actually really difficult. Yet it's a, it is such a normal human thing to do that. Applying it to the workplace, I think is, I think is what people find really hard. Yes. You know, and it's really interesting. A lot of what I learned about teaching people to care personally, I learned from a, a person who was on my team who had been a Marine, a Marine. and Russ Laraway is his name. And he came to me one day and he said, you know, I, wanna, I want to fly 150 managers from all over the world to California. And the reason why I want to bring them together is I want to teach them how to have get-to-know-you conversations. <laughs> and to my shame, I at first completely dismissed this idea. I thought, I said, this is ridiculous. People either know how to get to know each other or they don't. People either know how to... And he said to me, you know... Human relationships are hard, and it's not an innate skill. It's a skill that can be taught. Part of leadership is caring. And in the military, they teach us how to do this right. And I was like, Whew, who knew? You know, I had this sort of uh, uh, incorrect view of the military as the ultimate command and control machine. But it turns out that 
in the military, there's 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 more recognition than I than certainly I saw in in corporate America or cor- sure. the the global corporate world uh, that these relationships that people form is a huge part of success. And, and it's important, it's important to teach people how to have these conversations correctly. So when, so what I learned from, from Russ is that first of all, you want to give people permission to have conversations. So the first conversation, the, one of the questions we suggested that people could start with is beginning with kindergarten, tell me about your life. And this was really a lot of people, it was correcting a misperception that a lot of people had that personal conversations have no place in the, in the workplace, especially when there's a manager and an employee. And so teaching people that they do have a place was the first important thing. But the second important thing is that you're, you're also teaching people to respect one another's boundaries. Caring personally does not mean get creepily personal. Mm. It does, and and there were some real sort of damaging moments where one one leader who we were teaching to have career conversations decided it was a good idea to really probe his employee on his parents' divorce, and that is not the idea of caring personally to 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 probe in an area. Where where people are not comfortable, I think there there were we also got feedback that there were it wasn't the majority, but there were you know a significant number of people who said I would rather poke a sharp stick in my eye than have a conversation with my manager about my childhood, and that's got to be okay. The manager has got to figure out okay if you don't want to start with kindergarten, start with grad school, start with your first job. Like we can just talk about your professional life. But I want to know about what you care about at work. And, and the idea of this conversation is to sort of probe in and understand that pivots that the person has made and learn from those conversations what really motivates people at work. What do they value about work? And, and you're going you're gonna to put people on projects that are more relevant to them. You're, you're going to do a much better job managing people if you understand what motivates them at work? Like, why wouldn't you try to understand that? Yeah, we, we did a we do a great exercise with with our leadership team called Lifeline, um, which is basically it's that having a get to know you conversation, which is twenty minutes in a group, and tell us about your life. Include the things you want to you want to um, uh, you want to include within it. You know, don't talk about things that you're you're uncomfortable about. But I. There's a really subtle point that that um, I was hearing as you were talking, which is that you're trying to understand the trajectory of a person up until that point. And I think the reason why that's so key is that fundamentally, I believe, is an organization's priority is help the person that is with you uh, continue to move along the trajectory that they are on and that they want to move along. And... Uh, work out how that fits in line with the organization's goals and and things that it's trying to achieve. And I think if you can do that really well and you can understand where's Kim come from, where's she going, what are her priorities, what's her trajectory, how can I line that up with what we want as an organization? Where the magic is, is when you do that um, really, really effectively, people are engaged, they feel motivated, they're learning, they're growing. And guess what? The work is also 
tremendous and the performance and the business results come and it's just it's it's the complete package yeah yeah i think that's exactly right and i think to sort of double click on this word that you use trajectory so i think the at least in the way that we had these career conversations the uh, the the first conversation the get to know you conversation the lifeline conversation as you call it was really understanding, as you say, the past. Where has this person been? And the point of understanding the past is is really gaining a better understanding of of the person's values or or what motivates the person. And then there was a second conversation that we taught people to have about the future. And the way that we the way that Ross suggested that we structure that conversation is, you know, imagine your life when everything is going as well as it possibly could could going like you're you're at the apex of your career what does it look like and paint you know three or four or five different pictures of what that looks like and that was really to help understand a person's trajectory where they wanted to go and and the reason to say tell me three or four or five is that very few people really know what they want to do when they grow up and so, so you don't want to put that kind of pressure on people, but, but we all have sort of an idea of what happiness and success would look like in the future and understanding that and understanding like what, then the third conversation became around, what are the skills that you need to develop right now in order to take a step in the direction of your dreams? And sometimes where a person is right now is very different from where they want to be. So there was one person on Russ's team who was selling double-click ad servers. And what she really wanted to be doing was owning and operating a spirulina farm. Spirulina is a high-protein algae. So very different, very different. And it's tempting for managers to think, why do I even want to have, like, why do I even want to know that? What, what, is, what is the possible relevance of the spirulina farm to the double-click ad server? But the answer is, like, do you want to be part of that conversation or do you not want to know what's going on, A? And B, sometimes you can identify things that this person is doing right now that actually are moving them a step in the direction of their dreams. So, so for this particular individual, she and Russ realized that to own and operate a spirulina farm, she needed to develop her management skills. And in fact, Google was a pretty good place for her to, manage, to develop her management skills. So now all of a sudden this work that had seemed kind of irrelevant became very relevant. And also, crucially, she had been pushed to do more analytical work, and she realized that it was more the management skills she wanted to develop than the analytical skills. And so she decided, no, I'm not going to do that project. Yes, I am going to do this project. And that was a big deal because now all of a sudden she cared more about the project. The project seemed more relevant to her future, and she did a better job. Surprise, surprise. It turns out that People do better work when they feel like it's taking them in the direction of their dreams. Yeah. So, you know, when you hear that term care personally, you know, it sounds, it can sound, I guess, relatively fluffy, right? What does that actually mean? But what we've been unpacking for the last 10 minutes is it's where have they come from? Where do they want to go? How does that help us understand the individual so we can give them the best experience um, unlock the things that they want to do, unlock the the direction that they want to go in. Yeah. 
but but why does that allow us to give better and more useful and more impactful feedback so the the reason is that when you understand a person a little bit better so let's say you've now you've had your get to know you conversation you've had you've had your sort of dreams conversation you've you've had this conversation where you're figuring out uh, how to help uh, the person develops skills that are going to move them. Now, all of a sudden, this person has become more interesting to you. <laughs> you can't, you, you, you almost can't have those conversations and care less at the end of them than you did uh, at the beginning about this person. And so now you go into your one-on-one meeting and you're looking forward to it because you're going to have a conversation with someone who you're interested in, who you like. And so now all of a sudden, the one-on-one meeting is not more calendar clutter, but rather it's something, it's something enjoyable that you get to do that day. And so you're going to have a better one-on-one meeting and you're going to be more, you're going to be more likely to solicit some feedback at the end of that one-on-one meeting because you're interested in what the person thinks. And that's going to help you grow as a leader and improve as a leader. And when you see the person tripping up in the day-to-day. You're in a meeting with this person. You care about this person. You see them make a mistake. Because you care about them, you're much more likely to pull them aside and tell them about You're actually more likely to challenge someone directly when you care about them than when you don't. Because if you don't care about them, why? It's hard. It's hard to challenge directly. Why bother? And you're also more likely to do it in a way that they can hear if you know them a little bit in a, in a way that is easiest for them to hear. So one of the things when I think about radical candor, I, I, there's this two by two framework where the vertical, the vertical line is care personally, the horizontal line is challenged directly. And one of the keys to getting these conversations right is to understand when you need to attend more to the care personally dimension or when you need to attend more to the challenge directly, like which vector do you need to choose for that conversation? And if you know somebody well enough to understand that that what you've said has made them feel uh, angry or made them feel sad, then you know that you need to attend to the care personally dimension. Whereas when you know this person well enough and you say the thing to them and you can tell they just haven't heard you, then you know you need to challenge even more directly, to be even more clear, to say it again and maybe even a little bit more directly. And, and sometimes that can feel harsh, but if you know the person well enough, you, you know how hard you have to push and you know, you know when you need to really attend to, to what, they're, what they're feeling. Yeah, I, I definitely you know, listen, listen to you say that. The people in my team that I care the most about are definitely the ones that I'm hardest on. And I, and I feel, you know, I don't even think to say, hey, by the way, I think that could have been better for these reasons or, you know, let's, let's try and be tighter on this or whatever. You know, it flows more because I, I know that they know. I don't even have to think that they know that it's coming from a really good place. It, you know, it's 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 me trying to make them better and help them f- fulfill the things that they want to do. Yeah, and they know you have their back, and so it's easier for you to say. It's easier for them to hear. The whole thing is a lot less fraught. For sure. So, a CEO comes across 
this framework and they say, okay, this is something this is something we want to do, you know, radical candor, okay, that sounds exactly like what we need in our organization. That's gonna that's gonna help us. Um and and then you're talking to them about, okay, well, you need to establish much greater trust, much greater care, um, much greater um uh sharing of knowledge and insight and and uh and who we really are uh between line manager and team member and and within the teams that we work within do you ever get any pushback from from those individuals or oh, this sounds a bit sounds a bit soft or it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't sound what I sound like what I'm here for you know do you are you do you need to argue the case for for this part of of the framework you know, it's very interesting. The <laughs> since radical candor came out, I have had very uh, I, one of the things I was most worried about when before I published the book is that people would would say, "Oh, this is just a bunch of soft sort of," and, and I was afraid that there might be some gender. You know, this is a bunch of soft feminine bullshit, and that has not happened. Almost ever. There was one conversation I had with some venture capitalists where they're like, how can you measure the impact of this? And I basically I said to them, it was a very un-Silicon Valley moment. I was like, look, I cannot give you a quantitative measure to prove, but this is almost like an aesthetic decision. If you think you can do just as good work in an ugly house as in a beautiful house, go live in the ugly house but I choose to live in the beautiful house. And since that time, there have been some really interesting efforts to quantify this. Uh, Amy Edmondson in, in her work, in her book, The Fearless Organization, has done a lot of, of, of really rigorous work quantifying the benefit of psychological safety. And so much of psychological safety is about this caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. And so happily, the research has been done and it seems to back up my, my instinct that this is the right way to manage. I would say that the thing that happens most often with, with a CEO wanting to roll out radical candor is a feeling of it's very, you, you can, human relationships don't scale. You can only have human relationships with a small number of people. And, and telling a CEO, like, I'm not going to give you this process that's going to make everybody behave a certain way. But if you lead by example, if you build these kinds of relationships with your direct reports, they are much more likely to build those kinds of relationships with their direct reports. And then you do build a culture of caring personally. And culture does scale, even if relation, human relationships don't scale. And so I think that's one of the things that I talk to, uh, to leaders wanting to roll this out. At, at, at the same time, so much of radical candor is about these impromptu two-minute conversations that people have. And there's no way to instrument, well, there probably are ways to instrument that, but they would be pretty big brother, pretty creepy. <laughs> so, so, so you need to teach people to build a habit of radical candor. And you can't, there's not an HR system that you can impose that forces this on people. It can't come externally. It's got to come from within. So having said that, there are some things that leaders can do to, in addition to forming good relationships with their direct reports, to build a culture of radical candor. One is to solicit it publicly. 
in general, I say praise in public, criticize in private. But when you are the leader, soliciting radical candor publicly and, and encouraging people to tell you publicly is really useful. And it's useful in a couple of ways. One, it gives you the opportunity to model the order of operations. Radical candor begins by soliciting it. It doesn't begin by dishing it. Don't dish it out before you prove you can take it. Two, it gives the leader an opportunity to model how to respond to it in a non-defensive, productive way. And which is not to say the leader has to always agree with the feedback. Sometimes the feedback will be wrong. I was coaching one CEO and I, and he was very open to feedback. He was, he was one of the most, he was excited. He was hungry for feedback. But I one time gave him some feedback that I had heard from the team. And he looks at me and he said, I reject that feedback. <laughs> and it was the, the fact I realized in the moment that it, the reason why he was so open to it was he also felt free to reject it when he felt that it was wrong. So, so but he did it in a way that was very respectful. I mean, he told me I reject that feedback. But it, when he went to the team, he said, some of you think X, I think Y. I want to tell you the part of X that I agree with, but I want to offer a respectful explanation of why I think Y is the right way to go. And so, so I think leading by example, soliciting feedback, I've seen other leaders actually share their 360 feedback with their whole team. I think that is can feel very vulnerable, but it also can be a really powerful thing to do. Um, another thing that is helpful, a process that you can roll out, are speak truth to power meetings. And, uh, and this is complicated because a speak truth to power meeting, it's also sometimes called a skip level meeting, but that sounds kind of hierarchical and I try to avoid <laughs> that kind of language. Yeah, nice. um, But the idea is that the CEO would meet with, with the direct reports of all their direct reports. So if I'm the CEO and you work for me, I'm, I am gonna, or if you're the CEO and I work for you, you're gonna meet with my direct reports without me in the room. And you're going to ask them what I could do or stop doing to be a better leader. And you're going to take notes and then you're going to prioritize the feedback and help me address the concerns. Now, this speak truth to power meeting flies in the face of what I call clean escalation, which is another norm that I recommend that, that CEOs put into place. And the idea of clean escalation is that you never let one person complain about a, a second person if that second person isn't in the room. Mm. So don't talk badly about each other behind each other's backs. Yeah. Very simple. Not, not, not a novel concept, this. Uh, but, but one that is too rarely put into practice in the workplace. And the reason why I make an exception when there is hierarchy, the reason why I make an exception for the Speak Truth to Power meetings is that you really need to make sure that when there is authority, that you are making it, that you're taking extra steps to make it easy to challenge authority. Because if the whole idea of, of radical candor is that it's based on human relationships, there are a few things more damaging to a human relationship than a power imbalance. And so you've got to structure your organization in a way that gets people on a level playing field. Mm. And so that's part of the reason why the Speak Truth to Power meetings are important. When I was at Google, in fact, the, the, 
the person, Shona Brown, who headed up business operations at Google and, and is, was responsible for really operationalizing a lot of Google's culture, took great lengths to make sure that no, there was no unilateral authority at Google, that, uh, that no manager had unilateral decision-making power over who to hire, who to fire, bonuses, uh, any of that sort of thing. People could change teams without their manager's permission. And stripping all the traditional sources of power from managers was really important to creating this culture of radical candor where people could build relationships and weren't afraid to do the things you have to do to build relationships. I'm so glad you talked about mirroring the behavior, exhibiting the behavior that you want to see from, from, from the people around you. And I think that it's such a simple thing, but it is so impactful uh, from, from, from leadership. And I think it applies to any type of cultural trait that you're trying to instill within an organization. The easiest way to enable it is to live it, but also the easiest way to undo it and to have it crumble to the ground in lots of small pieces is uh, to do the opposite and, yes. and for that and for that to be seen, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, up at the top, we talked about um, uh, you know getting to know someone that you're working with, uh, understanding what their dreams are, where they're trying to get to, and then knowing maybe the skills and the objectives that they've got um, to get there as a way to start to establish that caring um, uh, relationship. Are there any other, I guess, top tips that you would give to someone listening to this thinking, we have quite a direct culture, but sometimes people feel like we're maybe a bit too political and we need to move ourselves um, on that quadrant a bit um, uh, a bit further up on the care personally scale. Apart from those three things, are there any other tools and tactics that you'd recommend? This is going to sound paradoxical, but I really don't think the best way to get to know people at work is breakfasts and dinners and the after work stuff. The way to get to know people at work is to work well together. <laughs> I once I, I once had a boss and I, I tend, I know a lot of people think you're not supposed to do this, but I tend to eat lunch alone at my desk at work because <laughs> I'm busy and I'm trying to get home to my kids. And my boss came in and he's like, I don't get it, Kim. You know everybody, you have all these good relationships and you never schmooze. And, and so I just want to say that building good relationships at work is not about schmoozing. In fact, very often schmoozing is a good way to create a culture of manipulative insincerity. So I think the best, the best way to get to know people are, are really these little moments in the workplace. So for example, when, when, I, when I was at, at Google, I, I got married and I changed my last name, which was a controversial decision to begin with. We won't go into the whys and wherefores of that. But anyway, I did. And, and I was, but I felt a little, you know, I wasn't so sure I was making the right decision. I felt awkward about it. And, and when, when I did it, for some reason, the Google LDAP system, the email system, whenever I would send an email, my old my, my, my maiden name self would reply. So Kim Scott would send an email and Kim Malone would reply. It was so embarrassing. It was like highlighting this thing. I was kind of hoping to, 
to glide right past. And there was a there was a guy I worked with, actually Dick Costello, who wound up beca- yep. becoming the CEO of Twitter, and who who I wound up coaching. But he and I didn't know him that well in the moment. But he just made a joke of it on email. He's like, "Kim, your single self is talking to your married self. This is unprecedented territory." And it was like it was it was a, a small act of kindness, like acknowledged my human discomfort and made me more comfortable. Like that was a great care personally moment. I didn't have to go to dinner with him. I didn't have to miss dinner with my kids. We didn't have to have lunch. It was just a moment. And so I think like right now, one of the things you can do to show you care personally is just in the chit chat, in these in these silent, in these kind of spare moments as you're waiting for a Zoom to start and everybody, it's like an awkward, just make use of that time. Yeah. Make good use of that time. That's a great way to get to know each other. Just, it's all about seeing each other as human beings in the moment. It's not about having drinks after work. Mm. I'm so glad you say that uh, for a number of reasons. Reason number one is, we can't we do can't that. have drinks yeah. after work anymore yeah. and so <laughs> we're in this amazing petri dish at the moment um of kind of experimentation in terms of culture and and organizations having to think about how they work and, and they run and the second reason i'm glad you say that is um uh, my my flag that i'm waving the thing that i am most passionate about is moving away from thinking of culture as ping pong tables and bean bags and what yeah. we work says it is and after work drinks and parties and all of that Ugh. and actually realizing that culture is a manifestation of three things it's the people you hire it's uh the processes how you run as an organization how you communicate how you align how you give feedback uh and and it's your policies it's your ingrained do's and don'ts some of those might be written down some of those might be things that we do have just learned it's actually very tangible things. All of that creates your culture. It builds your culture. It's not, are we doing breakfast? Are we doing lunch? I think we need to get away from thinking about those sorts of things. Yes, please. Because I think it's really part of part of getting to know people at work is allowing them also to go home and to have lives. And I think we've, we have way too much of a 24-7 culture. I mean, some people like to work that way, and that's fine. Other people don't, and that also needs to be fine. And, but I, I don't think the best way to get to know each other is uh, at work. Like these are work relationships. These are different from other relationships. The best way to get to know each other at work is to work well together at work, not to try to repair all the damage you did all day at work after work by drinking too much. Like drinking too much together after you're mean to each other all day is not, it's not a good recipe. And and in one line, do you think that your organization performs better as an organization because you have that um, you have that web of care for each other? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, great. I definitely feel that as well. Um, hey, so uh, when I started out in business, um, I've never worked for myself, and that's a an amazing thing. It's also a really bad thing. I've always worked for myself, uh, even, because um, I don't have much context. I, my first few experiences of managing some, um, uh, managing a team, I kind of knew it in my gut that I wanted to care. I wanted to 
look out for people, truly understand them. And that felt counterintuitive. It didn't feel like that was what you did if you were a CEO in the London tech scene. It didn't, it didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. And there were three books that uh, sort of gave me the rubber stamp that, yeah, that was, that was okay. It was um, Tony from Zappos' book, Delivering Happiness. It was Simon Sinek, Leaders at Last. And it was your book, Rare Wakanda. That you can build amazing cultures, you can care about your team and your people, but you can still deliver amazing results and build great organizations. I say that because your new book is, is on the way. So quickly, and I know you can't share all of it, but what am I going to learn from that? What's it going to teach me? So if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of feedback. <laughs> and I got a lot of feedback after Radical Kinder came out. And uh, the, some of the feedback that most moved me was, uh, were the following kinds of incidents. I, was, I, was, I went to do a Radical Kinder workshop at the company of, of a person who I had worked with for over a decade. And she's one of too few black CEOs in tech. And she said, you know, Kim, for me, I have to be so careful with radical candor because if I seem even a, a tiny bit annoyed, I get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true, but I, I realized that I hadn't fully understood in a decade of working with her ha that I had never seen her seem even a tiny bit annoyed and, and like the toll that must have taken on her. And it was, it was sort of a, a wake-up call to hear that. Then I was in another workshop, and, and a participant raised his hand. And he said, look, Kim, you and I have a similar problem in that we walk in the room and we say something that we intend to be radically candid. But because of the way we look, people take it in, a, in, in ways we couldn't predict or in ways we didn't intend. But he said the way this manifests for you is very different from the way it manifests for me. I'm a tall black man. You're a short blonde woman. And so the things that you do to overcome the stereotypes that you struggle with have got to be very different from the things that I do. And I realized, of course, that he, he was exactly right. And so Just Work is the next book. It's Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. And it's really about how to build more equitable work environments so that radical candor and all these great ideas will work equally well for everyone. And so I think the idea of workplace injustice, we tend to treat it like a monolith and a monolithic problem. And so what I tried to do is break it down into its component parts. Sometimes you get bias, sometimes you get prejudice, sometimes you get bullying. These things are related, but they're different, and they each demand a different response. And then you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying, and you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And so what are the things we can do to, to create checks and balances in the workplace so that, so that those problems don't destroy our workplaces, which they will do if we, if we let them, if we don't uh, intervene? And, and also, I wanted, I wanted this book to leave people feeling optimistic that there are things we can do and that we can do right away. And so I sort of also broke it down, things leaders can do, things upstanders can do, things we can do when we're the 
person harmed by these attitudes and behaviors, and also things we can do when we've been accused of these attitudes and behaviors, when we are part of the problem, how, how we can become part of the solution, not part of the problem. So that is just work in a nutshell. Amazing. And if I want to pre-order it, where do I go? You, you can go to my website, radicalcandor.com. You can pre-order it there. And there's a lot of different independent bookstores that you can pre-order it from. It's a great idea to support them. Uh, and you can also go to Amazon if you like to buy books on Amazon. I, I love that you said that. Our office is opposite an independent bookstore, so I, I like to buy all my books from there. And can I say, if you're listening to this and you've not read Radical Candor, please um, please also read that. I have two copies. I've just noticed behind me. So um, uh, the first person to to email me or tweet me, you can have my other copy. I definitely don't Excellent. need. Excellent. I definitely don't need to. Um, uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a must read for anyone thinking about how to build feedback into the. Um, culture of their business um, and and with that we need to wrap up today uh, we are out of time I feel like um, Kim and I could speak forever on this subject um, but I need to say a big uh, thank you for joining us today uh, thank you Kim I really really appreciate you taking the time and uh, for chatting with me thank you thank you really loved it yeah it was great uh, and as, as ever I have to thank uh, Mel our producer behind the glass uh, for keeping the show on the road to all of you listening along wherever you are we really appreciate you remember if there's an issue or a topic you'd like us to discuss please drop us a line I'm at Gately on Twitter and we are at Join Charlie we look forward to seeing you again soon I've been Ben Branson Gately your host and this has been the Culture Ops Podcast <laughs>